the 34th episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is An Attorney's Advice on Navigating Transition, A Conversation with David Genn. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com and on wealthmanagement.com, as well as iTunes and other resources. The acceleration of advisor movement and the proliferation of a hypervigilant compliance culture within the walls of the big brokerage firms is keeping people like my guest very busy these days. As the head of the litigation department at Elinoff, Grossman and Scholl, David Genn has served clients ranging from captive advisors to the largest broker dealers and registered investment advisors, as well as individuals in civil, criminal and regulatory investigations, litigation, contractual and transitional matters for the last 25 years. Since 1992, David has concentrated his practice on the financial services industry helping advisors work through the intricacies of non-protocol moves and the challenges of terminations and other contractual matters that arise through the transition process. No doubt, David has some great advice to share when it comes to planning and executing a successful move. There's lots to discuss, so let's jump right in. David, thank you so much for joining us today. I know there's lots of interesting things to talk about, so let's jump right in. Happy to be here, Mindy. If you would, David, tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice and specifically the work you do for advisors. Sure. I'm the chairman of a nine-attorney litigation department at Elinoff Grossman & Scholl, an 80-attorney New York City-based law firm. I've been representing brokerage firms, RIAs, senior management, and financial advisors in pretty much all facets of the securities industry for the last 25 years. I started in the early 90s suing Prudential Securities over energy limited partnerships for some of your more seasoned veteran listeners and uh, you know small firms like Stratton Oakmont, the Wolf of Wall Street. I was later the general counsel of a firm, and I've been working with traditional broker-dealers, independent broker-dealers for well over a decade when I saw the industry shift, and RIAs for the last several years as well. And our practice is very varied. We do litigation, state and federal court, arbitration. I have 100 approximately FINRA arbitration awards, compliance, regulatory work, and financial advisor transitions as well. As an adjunct, I'm also a former NFL agent, and I represent several uh, NFL players as effectively their general counsel, guiding them and negotiating on their behalf with agent selection, financial advisor selection, business due diligence, and things of that nature. Well, that's really cool. And maybe that'll be a topic for an episode another day. But for now, could you tell us a little bit about what's been taking up most of your time lately with respect to financial advisors? Sure. We've done a ton of transitions. That's routine for us. We've also been involved with a lot of FINRA and SEC investigations, U5 language, Form U5 language negotiation and litigation, particularly with financial advisors that depart on an involuntary basis. And we've also done a lot of M&A work in the RIA space 
And I think at last count, we did over 75 financial advisor transitions in 2018. Wow. Okay. So I want to spend some time a little later talking about voluntary moves being made out of non-protocol firms, such as now Morgan Stanley and UBS. But you mentioned just now that the greater challenges arise with involuntary resignations where advisors, as you said, get the call to visit headquarters or inform that they're being terminated. Can you talk a little bit about the issues that arise as a result of this, the advisor not having created a protocol list relative to U5 language, state licensing, licensing, et cetera? Sure. It's, uh, it's, it's a real shame uh, and I have a real soft spot for that because of the lack of humanity uh, it, uh, on the part of a lot of firms. Uh, and it creates a lot of challenges for the advisor. You know, a Form U5 with a mark is, uh, as I'm sure you're quite aware and you deal with in your practice, uh, makes it challenging to reaffiliate. Uh, firms are concerned about uh, the regulators looking at their rosters for folks who have marks on their licenses. The What language will be on the U5? What FINRA investigation will result? And with a lack of preparation for a move, with a lack of education for a move, makes it far more difficult to communicate with the clients that were serviced beforehand. And quite frankly, it, it provides fodder for the receiving advisor uh, to communicate with the clients and try to retain their services. So there's, there's a whole host of issues uh, that can arise that really complicate uh, and, and protract that transition. And oftentimes it's a shame. And so specifically, you said to me, one of the challenges is that it's a surprise. And so the advisor has not had the chance to create a protocol list. Can you just spend a minute talking about what that is and how that actually impacts the advisor in real life? Sure. Well, if, if an, an advisor is at a protocol firm, the protocol protections enable an advisor to make a list with five categories of information. I coined an acronym, uh, a poor one, but about 10 years ago, and I called it being extra neat, you know, N-E-A-T-T, uh, with an extra T, because you can take the name, email, address, telephone number, and account type. And you can create a spreadsheet and take it with you upon departure and solicit those clients. So you can be reasonably well prepared with enough information regarding the clients you serviced to solicit them post-departure. And it uh, creates great ease and fluidity, assuming that the accounts were in subject to a sunset agreement or a couple of other exceptions. If you don't have that list, it's not the information that's necessarily so hard to obtain in today's 24 7, 365 social media, Google world. It's the coordination, the synthesis, and quite frankly, having all names available, which makes it far more difficult if you don't have that list if eligible. So it seems to me, you know, we live in a zero tolerance, hypervigilant compliance environment. And so the number of terminations based upon seemingly CYA based technical reasons, and I say CYA in air quotes, has really accelerated. Would you agree with that observation? Absolutely. 
And it's really, again, shameful. You know, uh, firms don't like the competition of robo advisors, yet they try to treat human advisors like robots and, you know, have no tolerance for, you know, what in my experience are, you know, we're humans. All humans make mistakes. Yeah. And so, look, there are plenty of people, I'm sure, plenty of terminations that happen for valid reasons. But as I see it, there are, we have seen many more folks, an acceleration of the folks that are terminated for reasons that they wouldn't have been five, 10 years ago. And today they are. So from your perspective, from a legal perspective, how easy is it for those folks to turn around and wind up or land, reaffiliate with a high quality firm? It's far more challenging. And it's, you know, again, in my opinion, shameful. I agree with you. Certainly, if there are valid and legitimate bases uh, to terminate an advisor, then it, it's an obligation of the firm to do so. But I see a lot of less than necessary reasons where formally you'd get a, an internal memo. You'd be put on some type of supervision plan or something like that. And now it's a far less tolerant policy. And quite frankly, one of their first calls should be to someone like yourself so that the presentation can be made in a proper context. I was literally retained yesterday by a financial advisor based upon civility, clean license, decades of experience, large book, one employer, and had a bad night and used less than eloquent language, fired. And it's, it's a real shame. In my experience, it's pretty vast. We're all human. We've all had a bad night. And now there's a termination on the license. U5 language has to be negotiated. There may be a FINRA investigation and or state licensing issues. And when a presentation is made to a subsequent firm, additional discussion, investigation, and due diligence occur. And of course, an inability to be prepared for the clients that have relied on you know, that advisor for literally decades. Now he's gone. So, David, what are some other examples of these sort of CYA-based technical reasons that someone's terminated, a reason that they might not have been terminated some 10 years ago? I recently had an advisor that, on a fully disclosed basis, was assisting a sales assistant with Carly's payments. That's it. And it let a fine advisor, clean license very solid book of business and loyal clients and turned. And I, it, it's, to me, quite frankly, shocking. By the way, on the other hand, when I'm approached by those types of advisors, advisors situated in that circumstance, my view is it represents wonderful opportunity for you know other firms. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I agree with you 100% because you're getting an advisor that is now a little vulnerable, um, a lot chastened, a lot humbled, but a high quality advisor who made a mistake, who has an otherwise clean you for. So let me ask you a question. Where do these, from your view, where do many of these quality terminated advisors wind up? Do they land on their feet? And I guess my observation, because we work with a lot of them too, too many of them as well, is that many of them wind up moving toward independence. Um, 
a direction that many of them might have headed in anyway. They all say, you know, I've been sort of thinking about it. The, being terminated accelerates it simply because they are scared straight and um, or scared to death and never want to feel vulnerable again, want to take control of their professional destinies. But so what do you think about that? Is is independence a viable option? And can someone who has been terminated move to independence quickly enough? Totally agreed. Go uh, for it. In fact, the advisor that I was retained by yesterday is going independent. And it may sound cliche to suggest that from many of my clients, I hear the refrain, oh, I wish I would have done this you know, years ago, or blessing in disguise. But in fact, for many, many clients, and, and we've literally through the years done hundreds of advisor transitions and represent hundreds of financial advisors, there's a reason the numbers even bear out the shift in the industry paradigm for advisors from the, what, the former quote-unquote wirehouses to the independent broker-dealer space and now even further to the, the movement towards the investment advisory space. Yeah. So, David, let's shift for a second to the topic of protocol and advisors choosing to move voluntarily. So, since several major firms and original signatories of the protocol pulled out, how much busier have you been? Definitely busier, and particularly shortly thereafter, quite a significant degree of volume. And quite frankly, we picked up additional institutional clients because it was a large unknown what the impact would be. People had not focused on protocol, and there was a chill. And quite frankly, certain of those former signatories and founders of the protocol were active in going to the courthouse uh, to enforce non-solicits, which by membership of the protocol, they agreed not to. So it was a, a very volatile time. At this point, I would say irrespective of protocol membership, prior protocol membership, or otherwise, we're just busy because from my seat, we just see a paradigm shift in the industry and you know, there's just a greater move to independence, period. Does every advisor who works for a firm have the same employment agreement with the same post-employment restrictions? So if two advisors work for UBS, let's say, do they definitively have the same employment agreement? Well, the answer to that is no. Oftentimes, they're versions of the same, but no, not, not the necessarily the same. But usually, and UBS a little anomalous because several don't even have non-solicits, but usually they're versions of a theme. But different broker-dealers or banks will have very different forms non-solicit or contracts with non-solicit provisions. Some are a prohibition on servicing a client, not merely not soliciting the client. So protocol, if you're at a protocol firm and looking to leave, how big a deal is the non-solicit? And how big a deal is that same non-solicit provision if you're now with a non-protocol firm? Well, it's definitely a big deal because the protocol provides effectively peace of mind for an advisor to solicit the clients and avoid litigation. So it clearly is a benefit. It creates a nice fluidity, and it's clearly a benefit. 
less on the information side, because information is so readily available, but more on the manner with which you could speak to the clients that you formerly serviced. And so how big a deal is a non-solicit provision if you're with Morgan Stanley or UBS now, for example? Very big deal. The firm, the recruiter, the attorney are all, uh, we all have separate lanes to fill in connection with uh, transitioning an advisor. And we have separate roles and we could provide legal and you could provide the assistance in providing and negotiating a deal and the firm can do the background and accept the registrant. But the one thing none of us could control is client movement. What is the extent and level of the relationship of the advisor with the clients that he or she services? The ability to utilize the protocol creates a greater fluidity of potential movement than not having it. And obviously, client movement, it's existential for the advisor. And nothing that the wonderful services of Diamond Consultants, David Gann Attorney, or whatever that firm is that, that accepts the advisor, we can't move those clients. So it's really existential and really important for a, for example, Morgan Stanley advisor to know what can and can't I do in the non-protocol world being the subject of a non-solicitation agreement to facilitate or assist in client movement. And certainly to know beforehand, clearly, before making the decision. And it's eminently doable, but we call it the mirror test. Look in the mirror, be honest, evaluate the strength of your client relationships. If they're strong, the clients are going to move with you, irrespective of protocol or non-protocol, because of the, the strength of the trust of the relationship with the advisor. Yeah. What, how do the, the, probably the most feared letters in a financial advisor's um, lexicon, TRO, tell us what they stand for, where it's relevant, and how it relates to an advisor thinking about moving? Sure. I agree. They probably, those are the three letters. It's like a lexicon, you know, it, it's almost become a word, you know, getting TRO'd. A TRO stands for Temporary Restraining Order. In its simplest form, it's an application made by a firm, if and when a, the advisor departs, to obtain a court order temporarily restraining the advisor from breaching a contract. And the provision generally, of course, is the non-solicit provision of the contract. That could be existential and institutionally disabling for an advisor because, again, the advisor can go to a firm, the advisor can get licensed for the firm, but it really is of no great benefit to the firm or the advisor to go if there are no clients to be serviced. And I often analogize advisor transitions to the cold case uh, show where time is of the essence and relationships get cold rather quickly. And when you depart, you're most hopeful to have a fluidity of communication to the extent permissible with clients. And being the subject of a TRO isn't only costly and risky, it also takes away from energies that could otherwise be utilized trying to move a business. 
So how often in your experience, when an advisor moves from a non-protocol firm, how often does he or she get slapped by a TRO? Because it feels like a little less to me. The firms feel a little less litigious than they were when they first pulled out of protocol looking to make a statement. But how often does it happen? And how frightened should an advisor moving from thinking about moving from a Morgan or a UBS or any other non-protocol firm be of that TRO? Great question. The answer is the advisor shouldn't be frightened. The advisor should be prepared. And to further answer your question, with our firm, the last time we had an advisor that was the subject of uh, injunctive papers was in March about a year ago in federal court in Michigan, where Morgan Stanley filed against a team of ours. And after receiving our response papers and appearing for the court hearing, the application was withdrawn at the courthouse. That was the first and last time that we've had to defend any of our clients at a, an injunctive hearing. And the issue really isn't the frequency. We're certainly aware of others being named in filings nationwide. But whether it's a 1% chance, a 10% chance, or a 20, what I counsel clients is you wouldn't be happy if you came to me and said, what's the chance? Oh, one in a thousand. But, but if you're the one, that's existential. You don't want to take that risk. And if you're prepared and you know what your rights and remedies are, then you should be very comfortable in your move and not being subject to a TRO. David, so would you give us an example or two of successful moves you've advised on out of firms which are no longer or never were in the protocol? Sure. We've done, I think, two Edward Jones this week and a Morgan Stanley. We have a couple that are going to be upcoming fairly soon. And there's no magic to the move. It's really what we do for non-protocol transitions is counsel the clients, prepare the clients, educate the clients, and implement a strategy uh, which will hopefully provide a path towards a successful move. And thankfully, it's worked out very well, which has been great for the advisor, first and foremost, the firms, and helps us to get more referrals. Is there one you can share that you did say a year ago, just to get an understanding of how it went, what the strategy was, and how it ultimately went? Well, the strategy is always on a high level. Every advisor, by definition, being human, is different. Every book is different. Every unique advisor has a unique client base. So there are variations of a theme, but they're all somewhat unique, but the strategy is always to evaluate the book, evaluate the client base, evaluate the derivation of the clients, evaluate the number of clients, evaluate the contracts, and it's kind of holistic, other variables, and then look into the best methodology of hopefully and successfully moving those clients. It could be geography, it could be small town, big town. The advisor in connection with their practice could meet with the clients regularly in person, could be very telephonic. So the advisor could have a large number of clients, the advisor could have a very small number of clients with larger assets. So we evaluate 
the material elements and come up with a strategy to implement to ensure the advisor doesn't violate any contractual prohibitions. And generally speaking, then, how much in asset portability do they experience? And I know it's obviously dependent on the individual advisor, the depth of his relationships, the size of the book, but generally speaking. Um, Very high. If under what we talk about as the mirror test, look in the mirror. If you are a mature professional with deep and meaningful relationships with your clients, not merely, uh, you know, hearkening back to the 90s, you know, a cold calling cowboy selling a stock of the day, but spending meaningful time understanding the family circumstance, uh, uh, planning, being there for years, meeting in person. There's likely a very strong bond and role in the community. There's likely a strong bond and relationship that's been formed. And the relationship with the advisor and the client is far stronger than the affinity of the client towards the particular house or firm. Clients become more firm agnostic, advisor-centric. If, on the other hand, you look at the window and say, I I really haven't uh, paid enough attention to the clients I service for a while, and the relationships are very cold and commercial, and they really like the brand that I work at, then looking in the mirror and being honest, perhaps moving isn't the best idea. I agree with that 100%. We tell people all the time, stuck is a choice. So you're only stuck if you choose to be, but you also need to be really self-aware and honest about the depth of those relationships. And it is the depth of those relationships that is the single biggest determinant of portability, not the protocol or non-protocol or non-solicit or anything of the sort. Couldn't agree with you more. What, If I may add to that, Mindy, yeah. the oftentimes, and these are the best circumstances for us as counsel on behalf of advisors, we go through a litany of things to avoid, and I characterize it as to avoid stealing defeat from the jaws of victory. And I often talk about, if I may, Usain Bolt, who was the world-class sprinter, by far the fastest, biggest, best in the world. The only one during his prime that could beat Usain Bolt was himself through a false start. No human could could beat him. He was so much bigger, faster, and stronger. And he became a notorious slow starter because the only thing that could beat him is the false start. And what we counsel advisors is trust yourself. Don't get a false start. You'll win that race. You can only defeat yourself. And then we go through a litany of don't steal defeat from the jaws of victory. I love it. I love it. That's that's a wonderful analogy and thank you. So if an advisor from a non-protocol firm is considering a move, what should they be doing now before they're even ready to make the change? Anything they can do to prepare? Yeah, it's a self-analysis, look in the mirror, speak with someone such as yourself to learn all of the various options in the marketplace right now. They are far wider uh, than, uh, than in the past and, and to learn the benefits of the detriments of various platforms and various moves. And once that education and analysis has occurred, meet with counsel and plan and, and prepare for the move. And then you'll be very confident in your understanding and your education of what you're doing, where you're going, and how you can do it. 
And by the way, with advisors, with sales folks, you know, a clean and clear mental head is key towards success. Distraction is really bad. And if working with a professional such as yourself on the choice of where to go and with counsel who's uh, advising how to get there and work, uh, deciding on a place that you're comfortable with, if your efforts and energies can be focused just on being yourself and doing sales and have as many of the other details uh, taken care of by uh, competent uh, and, and experienced professionals, the likelihood of your successful transition will go way up. So surround yourself with a good team. I say the same to the professional athletes I work with. Focus on the field and let me and, and another group of professionals focus off of it. Clarity off the field will help clarity on the field. Yeah, I love it. I think that's great advice. Let me pivot for a second to just movement in general. One of the trends we see is that big brokerage firms are looking for ways to further lock their advisors down. And we're already seeing greater pressure to get advisors to sign on to their retiring advisor or sunset programs, changes to compensation, more onerous restrictions. Morgan Stanley just added Garden Leave for the first time to their enhanced retiring advisor program. And those are scary words for an advisor, a scary trend. From a legal perspective, what do you foresee in terms of other ways firms may tie their advisors up? It's hard to say, and naturally the firm would never characterize its actions as tying the advisor up. It would likely, you know, talk about all the benefits of the newly uh, implemented programs. But it's hard to say because you wouldn't think that if a firm, for example, Morgan Stanley, is so proud of its platform, of its value proposition, why is it modifying terms and making it more difficult for advisors to lead? Shouldn't the platform sell itself? And if you're so concerned about the thought of departure, that to me demonstrates an insecurity about the value proposition being offered. So it's hard to predict what firms will do. I agree with you. I've seen uh, Edward Jones has come out with a new uh, partnership program where where advisors are concerned about uh, things being more restrictive for them too. But what advisors should do is call yourself, call us or other counsel. And when change occurs, educate and prepare. I couldn't agree with that more. And I didn't even pay you to say that. Um, So what can advisors who may want to move at some point do now to protect themselves from being tied down further? So I'll give you an example. One of the things we tell people all the time is that before you or any member of your team signs on to your advisors, your firm's rather retire in place program, just be well aware of what you're signing up for, what it means to do so, what other options there are. Are there other ways for the senior advisor to monetize his life's work and the junior advisor to inherit the book of business? So what are some other ways, in your opinion, that an advisor can do now to prevent themselves from being locked up? Again, truly surround yourself with a team of experienced professionals in this space and counsel you. Counsel you meaning the advisor. The expression, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You know, by the way, it's not infrequent that we get calls of advisors who've signed agreements that they don't remember, they didn't keep, they didn't read, 
you know, whether it's employment agreements or whether it's annual questionnaires or whether it's new policies and procedures that they click a box without reading when it's online, or quite frankly, even notes where it's, you know, the only portion that's read is, you know, the dollar amount and not recognizing all of the parameters surrounding the note. And it's really ounce of prevention pound to cure. You're a licensed financial advisor. When you make recommendations to clients about uh, financial instruments, you do due diligence and you do it with due care on behalf of that client. And you should think of yourself in the same way. Before I agree to something, before I sign something, ask a question, understand the impact. That's my words exactly. I agree with that 100%. So David, to wrap up, look, your words of wisdom are invaluable and incredibly helpful. Are there any other parting words of wisdom or things I haven't asked you you'd want to share with our audience? The answer is, as you've said, be honest with yourself and be prepared. I sometimes quote to Sun Tzu, the art of war. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. And as a litigator, The greatest victory is that which requires no battle. If you're honest and you're prepared in the transitional context, you should be fine. Love it. David, thank you very, very much. Incredibly helpful. I agree with everything you said, and I thank you for sure. My pleasure. Anytime. David shared a quote from Sun Tzu and the Art of War, which is incredibly relevant and sums up an important point. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. Advisors considering a move shouldn't be frightened. They should be prepared. David's words of wisdom with respect to vulnerability, portability of assets, and how preparation is key to everything are words that every advisor can benefit from. Surround yourself with a team of professionals who can guide you with experience, objectivity, and knowledge, and you will be more confident in the process. In our next episode, we'll be speaking with Elizabeth Von Wellingham, former Merrill advisor and now founder and CEO of Maximai Investment Partners. Lisa, as she's known, and her firm focus on serving a global ultra-high net worth client base, a practice that became increasingly difficult to build and manage within the confines of Merrill. It's a great story that illustrates the real value of independence, especially for an internationally focused advisor, and the ability to build a business based on your client's needs. I hope you'll join us. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank wealthmanagement.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.